he like says to me or we get introduced and he's like, yo, I'm not going on stage until I get some lambskin condoms. And I was running up and down 6th Street like looking for these lambskin condoms. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What's up, party people? It's your boy, Hot Chocolate, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. I am very excited to share my really fun conversation with Sasha Gutfreund. You may not have heard of him or be able to pronounce his last name, but I promise you'll like this episode. And I know, I got you, I know what you're thinking. DJ Powerbottom, aka Noah, is your favorite rapper. Or maybe you're not trying to be a rap star, so you don't care what he has to say. But don't fret, don't worry, I got you. This is a story of how Sasha, a Jewish kid from Texas, went from a regular college kid to running one of the most popular rap music businesses in all of Texas. You'll learn three key things. How Sasha almost became a chef, but decided to get in the music business instead. How we got to work with Afro Man, the because I got high, because I got high. How we got to work with Afro Man, J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, and now helping manage Tory Lanez. Third, what makes people in the music business successful? How does someone get ahead in that? And the takeaway that you can use for any business and your life, plus a bunch more. Enjoy. How often do you get these calls where one of your artists is like, yo, this thing got messed up, this is fucked up, I want my shit, and then like you have to deal with it? I work in a passionate business where people sometimes lose their temper. And I think as I've gotten older, I've done a better job of like choosing when to or not engage. There's a frustration about an invoice and I'll handle it and it'll be addressed in a rational manner at another time. Sometimes you got to just let it lie for a couple hours, maybe overnight, and then kind of readdress it when everybody's calmed down. For me, that's just been my experience in general is that people get emotionally kind of charged up and sometimes speak without thinking. I'm guilty of that too. That's why I exercise so much, dude. Yeah, I want to stay centered, calm. Is that a typical day for for a promoter, manager? Well, I mean, it's a different business. The promoter business is really simple in the way in which it's structured. You cover all the expenses, you get the revenues, you keep the difference, whether it be positive or negative. There are relationships, of course, with agents, with managers, with artists, where you have to maintain those relationships. And as long as everything goes right and you take care of the client, you're not really going to get screamed at. You may lose money, but as long as you do your part, you're not going to get screamed at. On the client service management side, everything's kind of your fault. You never get to that point where you're just like, fuck it. Yeah, I mean, there's always those moments where it's like, you know, I'll call like my grandfather someone I talk to a lot, right? Okay. I'll tell him about an experience and he'll just be like, I can't believe that happens in your business. Like, I can't believe that that actually happens. So it's nice to hear I'm not crazy. What are some of the crazier experiences you've mentioned him or you think of? I remember like in the very beginning when I first started promoting shows, we booked the clips. I was warned, hey... They're not there to be friends. Because at the time when we were booking artists, everybody that was coming through, like we'd eat dinner together, we'd all drive in the car from city to city. It was like where rap was, it was in a different place than it is now. And so I meet Pusha T for the first time. And like I'm a junior in college and I'm like going into it a little nervous already. He like says to me or we get introduced and he's like, yo, I'm not going on stage until I get some lambskin condoms. He just saw the terror in my eyes, dude. So I was running up and down 6th Street, like looking for these lambskin condoms. And I was like, I don't know, I can't find them anywhere. It's just, he started dying laughing. And 
He was just fucking with me. I'm sure you get experiences backstage when you guys go out that are just not normal. Yeah. I mean, for me, like that stuff is whatever, you know, when you work for artists, like when you're producing events, you are backstage. And so then by virtue of that, you establish other relationships and hopefully they're good relationships. And then it becomes you're meeting different people and getting different experiences. The coolest thing is being able to share something that you're passionate about. Like for me, like I don't make music, but I love the music and I love to see different culture and experience different culture and to see music as a platform for people to amplify like their story where they come from. Perhaps it's a story that we wouldn't hear if it wasn't for music. We're so lucky, right place, right time. I mean, the fact that we started promoting hip hop shows in 2010 you know, we we're able to work with Kendrick and J. Cole and we were just in the right place at the right time when we cared about music. It was good. All these guys were going to go on to have great careers, whether or not we were ever involved. We were just fortunate in that we kind of called it early. How were you able to call it early? How did you go from a UT student just like going to class to being like, hey, I'm hanging out with Chance and Kendrick, like brand names, like worldwide names? Remember, the first time we booked Kendrick, there were like 90 people there at Red 7. You know, the quick version is I came here from boarding school. I wanted to qualify for in-state tuition. So I needed to get a job and maintain it for 12 months in the state of Texas. So I got a job waiting tables. I got a job selling advertising in the Daily Texan, which is a student newspaper. What I learned was that all of these businesses wanted to find the most compelling way to access college students in a way that felt authentic. If you start a small business in Austin, Texas, they base their revenue model off of students. UT is a lot of people. It's 50,000 kids. You know, there was this DWI lawyer and we had a good relationship. And I just, I kind of thought, you know, what if your name and number was on the 21 and up wristband at an event? Then like if anyone, God forbid, got pulled over, they would have. <laughs> so That's really clever. <laughs> That's really clever. I never thought of that. The tagline was softer than handcuffs. I was working with this. My RA in the dormitory at, it was a dorm called the Castilian. He rapped. This guy came up to me. He's like, hey, you know, I, I make music, blah, blah, blah. His story was powerful and he was really passionate about it. And, you know, I was selling cable and internet door to door. So I kind of learned about the door to door model. So I went around to different social organizations. It was like, hey, there's this guy named Kevin Jack. He's a UT student. He's a rapper. We should support him. And so went out and got kind of different representatives and I was handing out flyers or whatever. And we sold, I remember it was like 200 tickets. And he had mentioned like, there's this freshman kid that helped me promote it. That led to an event, which was Shwayze was the headliner. Tyga was the opener. And at the time, Schoolboy Q wow. was Tyga's hype man. Yes. Wow. Fucking crazy. You promoted that show? Well, but we got hired by someone else to promote that show. This was like really cool. We sold all these tickets, but we didn't really get paid. The promoter said he lost money. And then from that time, we were just like, yo, we should do our own show. I guess I'm trying to think about what's the lesson for other people. Is it just like you had some skills that you practiced, you merged it or paired it with something you already liked. Yeah. And then you just kind of kept going with it. For one, I think college is a great incubator because you're dealing with so many young people that are trying to figure out what they want to do next in their life. So I always encourage kids that I talk to, like, if you can start some type of revenue generating model in college and working with others and understanding what works and what doesn't, I think it's a great experience. I had no aspiration of being in music, man, none. I moved to Austin because I wanted to be a sports agent. I saw Jerry Maguire. I said, it's a wrap. I want that to be my life. I swear. 
But you kind of are that with music now. You kind of got what you wanted. Yes. And I love the music, but I also love, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to try different things. We do shows and festivals like, you know, our primary revenue driver now, the reason that our business is where it is, even though it began in concerts and we're so fortunate to have grown the business the way that we did, but it's the festival business. We have three festivals plus a bunch of shows, but the festivals are what like take the time, right? That's another cool thing about living in Austin. If I lived in LA or New York, I would have to like network and like, oh, come to this dinner. Yeah. I'm like, well, it is interesting. I mean, one, I am curious. From your guys' revenue and your business where you do some management, some promotion, what's the breakout at a high level? Mm-hmm. But it is interesting because you guys, your niche almost is like, yo, we own the South. You own mm-hmm. Texas. And I'm not, mm-hmm. you're not saying it arrogantly, but you're not over in New York or LA and like trying to hobnob over there. You're like, mm-hmm. look, when people come to Texas, they're going to come and mm-hmm. probably work with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we were really fortunate. You know, at the time we hadn't really worked with many people, but the fact that like we had worked with Cole, Cole had the regard that he did for us and was so great. And then Kendrick was, you know, it was just a good moment. And to me, that's just an example. You can't create that, right? Like you can't just go, that was a moment in time. So we built something organically. People like working with us because we care about the scene and the culture and we grew up in this and we have good relationships and we've done right by people and we're passionate and we love this shit. As long as we stay centered and we just stay focused on what we're doing, I think we're always going to be all right. Well, I think one thing about it that you said that just reflecting for myself and the people listening is just more of like, you do great work for people. They're going to tell other people about you. And it's like, that's what you did. You're like, look, we just served J. Cole and then we served Kendrick. And then like, they want to tell other people. It's like a good restaurant or a good movie. Like if it's great, I'm going to, Sasha, you got to go eat this place. Mm -hmm. And the same with the artists that you guys have worked with. And how did you transition? You're like, oh shit, actually, this is going to be my real full-time thing. So, like, the first time, you know, J. Cole came through, he played 500-person venues. Then they wanted bigger venues. So, the next time we went and found bigger venues, then they wanted bigger, you know, and then the artists that we were booking before that grew into the bigger venues. Well, we had just done it with J. Cole's. The artist growth and the growth of music is what dictated our growth. It wasn't like we went up to the bigger venues and we're like, hey, you know, it just kind of started bubbling and, and they were really loyal to us and we were lucky and we learned the game. And the first show we did was Afro Man. He sang songs of a culture that we could really, we understood. A lot of resin? Yeah. (laughs) I was such a knucklehead. I remember when he came, like we threw a barbecue and we kind of like, we wanted him to have like a great time. So like we had a bunch of, you know, the people that worked on the event and they were selling tickets. was like, hey, welcome to Austin. He was like, I've never been treated that way before. I think that was kind of the waiting tables piece, right? Like the hospitality, knowing how to like make someone really feel welcome. It's literally one opportunity that leads to another. So it's like Afro Man, the email came off of MySpace. I read some of these emails now and it's so funny. But it's like this big, like passionate speech. Like we're a group of college students. We just really want to bring shows that we really care about. It's for the students and by the students. And that's another thing that I tell people, like whether you're a band or promoter or whatever in college, go ask the venue for the worst day of the week and show them what you can do. And you'll get a bigger cut of the revenue that way. How does that work, by the way? Did you say, half hey, man, we're going to get you money. And then you go to a venue, to give me your shittiest day and then put that together. And we had like this guy that owned the venue and I, we had a mutual friend and he kind of connected us. And it was a burlesque rock club at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so Afro man graced the stage. It did well. He only gave us Mother's Day because his thing was like, it's a kid, you know, fuck it. If nobody shows up, whatever, it was Mother's Day. I wasn't going to make any money. And if it does well, free money. That happens. And then he asked if I want to be a talent buyer. He wanted me to book concerts for that venue 
on retainer, basically. Now he was going to sit back and pay for these shows. And the idea was we would split the profits 50-50. I had accepted a job to be a cook in Whitefish, Montana. That summer is when I was supposed to go. That sounded really good. So I turned down my chef gig. Still wonder, what would life look like? Yeah. Maybe better in some ways. I've actually been thinking about that personally. You know, where you go A or B. Yeah. You choose A and you're like, dude, I'm so glad I chose A. B yeah. sucked. And then I was thinking, well, if I chose B, I'd be like, dude, I'm so glad I chose B A side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we kind of rationalize and defend ourselves no matter what. And I think too, just you and I, we're always looking to just get better every day and enjoy it, right? If we spend a bunch of time like, oh shit, if I would have done this, you know? I definitely have guilt and I have like buyer's remorse and I also have buyer's glow, which I don't think people talk about. Where you buy something, you're like, like we bought sumo.com and I talk about it a lot, but every time I like email someone, I'm just like happy. I can't speak for you, but I know for myself, it's not that I'm Jewish and I'm just always complaining, but I just think I'm like always trying to look to like, what am I dissatisfied about and what can I do about it? Because I think it's very easy to say, here's a problem. Let me just complain and be negative. But I notice like who I want to be around and who I want to be is just like, all right, what's the solution for that? Well, how do I make this better? And just kind of keeping that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. You got to keep that mindset. And for me, there's so many things that can happen on a daily basis. I talk about this all the time that are out of our control. How do the economics of both businesses look for the people that don't know about what a manager does versus a promoter? Yeah, not easy. Management works off commission. So management just works off of revenue, whether it be gross revenue or net revenue. Every deal is different, right? Commission ranges from, you know, 10% to 25%, depending on who you are. But it's just a simple commission. Promoter business is different. Promoter business is based in risk. And again, it's just revenues against expenses. You hope you sell the tickets and that the revenue from the tickets and or ancillary revenue. So on festivals, revenues can look like base ticket sales, then there's sponsorship, then there's food and beverages, then there's merchandising. There are all these different deals. And then in venues, sometimes you go and get percentages, sometimes you don't and kickbacks or what have you kind of like incentives. And then your hope that your revenue is more than your expenses. If your expenses are more, you lose money. If revenue is more, you make money. We're teaching economics here. Dude, it's the simplest game in the world. If you came to me and you were like, I love rap music and I have $2 million and I want to throw a festival, I'd say, give me the money up front, but fine, let's do it. You know what I mean? Like anybody can do it. The problem is, and what you're seeing with Fire Festival and some of these other things is like, people really get into that state of anybody can do it. And you don't need a license to throw an event, which is scary. For the people listening, it was basically this event with super artists, super high luxury. And it was just like no food. The tents weren't there. Dude, they had like photos of the food for like the VIPs. It was like bologna and like craft cheese. Yeah. Everything you say sounds so not interesting about being a promoter. <laughs> You're like, you got all these expenses. It might not work out. This manager gig, like, why the hell would anyone be a promoter? Is there just like crazy more upside? Yeah, there's huge upside. First of all, the promoter side is much larger from a revenue standpoint. Okay. So from the economics, like your upside and the cash that generates and score more is all from the shows that you guys are Management doing. business is a separate business, separate P&L, separate legal entity, separate everything. They're two completely different revenue models. I don't mean to put the promoter business down other than to scare anybody that would like to do it because we want all the market share. <laughs> the promoter business, the upside is huge, but there's a higher risk side. I think that's just like true for business. What I've been noticing, like I think about Uber, if you create these businesses that no one ever does before, the behavior is totally different. Your upside is insane, but your downside of risk and more likely to fail is high. I generally like manager businesses where I'm not going to probably go crazy and we're going to be a billion dollar company, but it's more likely to work. And that's how a lot of the companies I've done like AppSumo.com, 
Groupon was already working. I was like, all right, well, maybe that for digital. Mm -hmm. That's a higher chance of working. Mm -hmm. And then sumo.com, it was like, all right, there's SaaS businesses selling tools of some sort. Why don't we just sell marketing tools? That's what we love to do. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of already had some uh, sense that it wasn't going to go crazy big, but it also, the chance of success was way higher. Mm -hmm. What makes us different, I think is important because you look at this space and it is so convoluted. You know, our model is that we go into markets that don't already have festivals, El Paso, San Antonio, or we go into markets that are bigger that do have festivals, but we offer them at a lower price point, one day only, kind of big show, one stage. We paint the corners, you know, we're just doing something a little different. Like so, that. although we have risk, we have a much less risky model because we're not going in and spending millions and millions and millions of oh, dollars on talent so we're mitigating risk we're at one with the consumer we want them to save money and so we're going to provide them a more affordable experience for them which is more affordable for us so maybe it's you know not 50 artists maybe it's 18 you know maybe it's not three days maybe it's you know two days and so i think i'm really proud of where the business is today and a lot of the people that are full-time at the business on Scoremore, dude, these are people we started together, street teaming together. The majority of people that I surround myself with now are the people that I started with. When you guys were starting to promote, was it just like flyering? Was it like yeah, Facebook ads? Dude, like, how'd you guys flyering. get people to your venues or to, to the Flyering, show? dude, just doing like doing whatever it took. A lot of, you know, with the door-to-door -door sales, that helped like kind of building teams and then like putting up flyers and posters and just, you know, booking shit that we wanted to see. Like, and just like paying attention to little weird things, like going into clothing stores and listening to what they're playing in the store. People who liked shoes also liked music. And kind of bringing those two worlds yeah, together. So smart. for us, we knew that like, you know, going into these retail spaces and listening, like, what are the people who are the epicenter of sneaker culture? What are they listening to music wise? Because we're in the same world. That's interesting. You looked for kind of like the similar affinity and that's a way of cross promotion. I love marketing. Yeah. How much has marketing changed on promotion over the years? I mean, we have a marketing team that's amazing. It's so cool because I was so involved for so long and now I hear them like talking about shit. They give me kind of the idiot's guide version so I can understand it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the marketing world has changed a lot. You know, the difference between us and I think some other promoters is we still do a lot of grassroots stuff, hand out tickets, you know, and we sell tickets. You know, we have this music fest, Jambalaya, to 25,000 people per day. And we're selling, you know, two, 3,000 of those tickets hand to hand via like the students and via the retailers that sell them for cash throughout the promotion of the event. Wow. It's crazy. We're like still very grassroots in that way, which is cool. So we do have some of kind of the old school tactics, you know, and then now obviously in the world of digital advertising and being obsessed with ROI. One of the things that you got me thinking about is that you, everyone's going left and you're like, well, let me go right. Let me get like El Paso. Everyone's going three days. I'm going to do one day. Everyone's going like $500, all these expensive tickets. Let me go like an affordable, good value ticket. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something a good reminder. It's like, well, what's the angle I'm coming at where I can have an opportunity? I think the biggest thing I got to figure out if I can get to what they want while fitting within my needs. Do I have the ability to deliver what they want on mutually agreeable guidelines, mutually beneficial guidelines? People of San Antonio want a music festival. They want it to be a price point of X. We want to be able to make money and sell tickets and put on a great event, right? They got what they wanted. We get what we want. It's beautiful. I can't go and tell the market to spend $500. I got to find out what they want and then I got to get them there.
And I'm the same way. I'm that way with booking artists too. It's like, yo, you tell me what you need. I'm not going to try to come in and lowball you or underpay you. That's good for nobody. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you feel good about, what will get you out of bed. Either it's too high for what I can afford yeah. or we can pay it. But let's not like the whole like you quote too high yeah, and then we send an offer. Like yeah. why? For what? I don't want anybody not happy. So if I'm an artist, let's say Rabbi can't lose. I'm a chooser's my manager. Yeah. So wh- who else do I need in my, my entourage? And like, what do you guys all do for me? Well, I think that the biggest thing is, is that people try to compile entourages too early. People are like, yo, I need a manager or an agent or a business manager. Nah, you don't need that. What you need is music. And with music, it will either connect or it won't. Now, the question is, can it connect with enough people to create momentum? But how do you get there? You need people to hear it. So the idea is, is that there's a million different ways you can get people to hear your music. Now it's so different, right? Because you got Spotify and iTunes and SoundCloud and blogs. And if you're an artist, if you're a rapper, like you should be focused on getting the people that you fuck with to listen to your music. See if they actually organically like it. Put a show on sale. Go rent a venue on Mother's Day. Have all your friends, if they actually believe in the music, go and bust ass and sell tickets and bring people out. And if those people are really, really like the show, then they're going to tell their friends and you go and you hand out mixtapes and you go and you put up merch. And if it's a business, then maybe you have somebody like a manager is there to manage a business. And now I think people get so like, this my manager, this my agent or this blah, blah, blah. It's like, let the music connect. Let the music connect, like get off your ass and let the music connect. And then from there, maybe there will be something to manage. Yeah. As I'm starting my career in rap, it's, yeah. it's going very slowly, by yeah. the way. Yeah. I haven't got my SoundCloud page yet. Yeah, it's okay. But I got Bandcamp. I'm selling like 99 that, cent albums. No, that's perfect. That's great. <laughs> do I hit you up? You hit me up. And then who else do I start hiring? Like, how does it all go down? Like, what are the economics of that look like? You know, the economics, again, is on a commission basis. You know, every story is different. For me, what happened with Tori was this. I got connected to him through a mutual friend. That friend managed Sean Kingston. And Sean Kingston owned a label that Tori was signed to. So there's a buddy of mine. He was like, hey, meet Tori. I flew him out to open for Big Sean. At this point now, he had like 6,000 fans on Facebook. He had probably put out two mixtapes. So it wasn't like big by any means. But like a little bit. There was enough people that cared. So when Tori came and opened for... Big Sean, he actually, he talks about it on the album, but basically, you know, the first show was so bad, he got booed off the stage and I just gave him a couple of pieces of kind of feedback. And so then from there, I was just kind of like, what are you doing with your life, man? He was, he was just kind of trying to get out of this deal and not knowing what to do. And so he moved in with me, he put out 13 mixtapes. And then eventually, you know, there were record deals on the table and we found one with Benny Blanco who's one of the biggest producers in the world and just one of the greatest human beings I've ever gotten to meet. The first two singles were Say It and Love, you know, two platinum records, the second one Grammy nominated. So from there, then I got to go and make sure he tours correctly and gets all the right festival looks. And, you know, is always kind of a tag team in that way. But as he tours and his merch goes up and, you know, that's how I get paid is off that revenue. So are you saying like, Hey, you're going to do these shows. Hey, I don't think this deal is good for you. Hey, I think like you should collab with this guy. Are you doing everything on like the musical side and then the business manager's like his finances? Yeah, I think the business managers mainly focus on like going over invoices and making sure that everyone's getting paid in a timely manner. The booking agent who handles the 
offers from the promoters, those inquiries, they bring them those offers to me. And then we talk about them. I have a great relationship with our agents. They're the best. Tori and I are lucky in that we have the relationship where he knows that if I'm good by it, he's good by it. You know, if the money's right and the slot is right and the positioning is right and the market's right and the ticket price is right, like he knows that I'm not going to lead him awry, especially in the touring world, because he knows my background, right, as a promoter. Other things, he's working on this new album. We want to get this artist to be on board as a creative director. He's going to do like merch design, photos, graphic design, like this kind of all in package. So we had to negotiate that deal and then get it all contracted or, you know, handling all this tour. Or he's working on this new album right now and he has like 16 songs and we have to go and get everything from like the producer agreement signed to handling splits to negotiating the deals to making sure the label approves everything to making sure there's nothing sampled in. And if there are samples, getting it cleared and getting the labels everything they need in every format. It's, you know, this whole manager thing is like, when do I get to have sex with the groupies? <laughs> it sounds like you're doing a bunch yeah, of work. Uh, yeah. I'm the boring guy on the road. I just like bang out my emails and wait to come home. What separated him and getting him to that next level versus a lot of other artists? He's an amazing songwriter and he's really talented and he got a really great team behind him and he made some great records. Like I don't have anything deeper than that. Well, you also made a lot of them. I think that's something that I'm just hearing over. I hate hearing it over and over again because all it reminds me is that it's going to take time. You got to keep doing it and you got to keep improving. 13 or 15 by total before finally two songs. Mm. I was talking to this YouTube guy, Tim Schmoyer, and, he's, and I, I was putting out like these videos and mm. I get like a few thousand views. I was like, man, why aren't my, why aren't I getting more? He's like, I've been doing this seven years, dude. You've been doing it for six months. And only one in 30 of your videos, if that, that's impressive, should be doing well. I just like telling that reminder to myself. It's going to take time. You got to keep working on it and stick with it. What you said before, like find stuff you're interested in and go after it. I guess I was curious, like, what kind of stories have you had where, like, it was just a complete disaster? Over the course of living in Austin, I gained a fuck ton of weight. It was not healthy. As things would get better or worse, right, I would stay up all fucking night. I wouldn't sleep, so I was not on a healthy routine, and I kind of had no sense of balance. So, thus, my fiscal success would determine everything. You are happy how well the revenue was? Exactly. When things were good, I was great. When things were bad, I wasn't, right? It's hard to live that way, right? You kind of got into get in a place, I think, of there are only certain things you can control. And for me, right, I'm going to go and I'm going to do that exercise every single day. And that I can control and I can get healthier. But whether or not people buy tickets, I can't control that. I remember there was this moment and I was at a show and I remember that I had like a beer in my hand. I had money in my pocket. I think I was going to get laid, which was a good thing. And I remember I had some drugs on me and I remember having all of these things that like would make me happy, the drugs, the girl, the money, you know, the booze. And I just felt empty. Like I felt like this is not for me. This is not for me. Like this was like my third time trying to stop. A week went by and there was an event and I drank there and that October 3rd, 2009, that was the last drink I ever had. You know, I struggled with alcohol and drugs pretty seriously. And so you know, woke up in a hospital or got arrested on campus for something that I didn't know I did. You know, my belief is that alcohol is not for me. You know, I have people that I love who drink. I have no judgment whatsoever. But alcohol and I, like, I have an adverse reaction to it. My experience is I stay away and life looks a lot better for me. That's just me. How have you balanced that? For myself, it's definitely something I experience, And I'm like, where does this fit in my life and how? I mean, I think everybody comes about it differently. 
I had my own experience, right? I got sober in 2009. I had a lot of help. I showed up to places, you know, established a community with other sober people. I had to be crystal clear in my heart because I tried drinking and then not drinking and drinking and not drinking. Just beer, just liquor, just weekend, just night times. Go week, week off. Yeah. It didn't work. That didn't work for me. So, like, once I just came to terms and just was at peace with the fact that, like, I can't live my life. I just can't live my life that way. I know that if I drink, like, I won't make life worth living. That's just my perspective. I love my life, dude. Like, now that you're on the flip side of that, going mm-hmm. back to, like, 21-year-old Sasha mm-hmm. or, like, person who's still drinking, not to say it's better or worse, but, like, right. what would you tell yourself about that? You have to do a really honest inventory of yourself. Is that creating consequences in your life? And if it is, you should probably look at it. That's it. That's it. If I talk to you about the fact I don't drink and you like start defending drinking and being like, well, why? I don't know. Like, If this subject comes up and you feel like defensive, you should probably look at that. I like that you're saying, look, this is what it is for me. And this is how I'm processing it. And you're more than welcome to take that the whatever way you'd like. I respect that. I appreciate that, man. Like, I think everybody's got their own definition. And, you know, if you look at the basis of it, right, like the principles we're trying to be the best that we can for ourselves and to make our community stronger, right? So whatever roads you take to get there, and if you can do that, drinking, you know, a bottle of Henny to the face every night, great, great. I just couldn't get away with that. I think after a while, you just stop thinking about it, man. Like I drink water and I'm not a bar club guy. Didn't wrap it up. I was just curious how what's like your dream work day? It's wake up at 6 a.m., go hit that quick morning spin. From there, I go to the office. I'm on that treadmill desk. You know, I'm on calls and emails all day. Afterwards, I go work out and then I go home and like just put it all away. I don't charge my phones in my room. I put them in the kitchen. I don't have my laptop. I'm like, I just like, once I get home, I'm done. You know, I think that's a dream day is like just being able to like be healthy, get shit done and then come home feeling like accomplished and like I took care of mind, body and spirit. That's the goal, right? Is how do you take care of those things on a daily basis? All right, little sneak peek. Thank you, David and Jason, for always doing the editing and helping me out with this stuff. Well, that's a wrap with the show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sasha. If you made it this far, you are my favorite person of the day. Thank you. Namaste. Next, go say hi to Sasha on the Twitterverse. It's Sasha, S-A-S-C-H-A Stone, at Sasha Stone, or at his website, scoremoreshows.com. Dot com. Last, you know what to do. Text someone you love them. Be like, yo, I'm thinking of you. Let's go have Korean barbecue. Have a great day. What's your favorite city in the world? <laughs>